The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in this three parts of this our last study in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. If you'll turn there, please with me. Would you look at God's Word? God's Word that is read in your hearing is infallible, inerrant, and sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. Would you look with me at verse uh, verse, uh, 18? For, underline that, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness Suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and by his mercy, may it be preached for you. Please be seated. So, if I could take you into my home, please call ahead. If I could take you into my home and upstairs to my study, you would notice on my table are 18 commentaries on the book of Romans. And um, I love it. I use more commentaries on Romans for two reasons. One is the depth of my love for this particular book, and I've, I've secured every profitable commentary I know of. I'm sure there are others, but the ones I know of. And I love to just spend time in them. I've been in them now for over a year preparing for this series. Um, but um, you would notice that some of them may be a little bit worn more than others. And I'm going to mention that to you this morning by way of when I'm, when I'm preaching, when I get to something that I have borrowed from these commentators, I, I try to always document it for you um, by, in some form or fashion. But because I want to just go through this um, as uninterrupted as possible because of its intricacies I would um, of this text, I want to go ahead and do my footnotes up front. I am particularly, out of those 18 commentaries, I am particularly grateful for John Murray's commentary on Romans, uh, for Jim Boyce, his Romans, for, John, uh, for Sinclair Ferguson, uh, for R.C. Sproul, and John Stott. Those, those five have been of inestimable value to me, not only in the book of Romans, but particularly in this challenging text. I mean, folks, you'll, I think you're, if we're honest at all, when we get to the end of this, 
you're going to feel like we're looking into a cultural mirror. We're looking at a mirror in these verses. This, what I call the three stanza song of death in a culture in which the grace of God, His common grace and redeeming grace is rejected or absent. This is the inevitable movement of total depravity into absolute depravity. And it's being described for us, but it's being described intricately. Folks, this is such a tightly woven text of Scripture. But it's also being, um, it's also intense. This is bone jarring. This is just spiritually, at least, bone jarring. This, this, um, this, uh, examination of the inevitability of God's wrath revealed at this time before eternity. Now, whenever I speak of God's wrath, um, you are probably like me. I automatically, my mind goes to the judgment seat where the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out, the eternal, irrevocable, unmeasured wrath of God poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who now meet his justice having rejected him and the eternal condemnation that's irrevocable. But what this text is telling us is there is a wrath that is now revealed. And as he's telling us this, he is very intricate in the way that he has woven this together. In fact, let me give you another. It's not only intense, it's not only intricate and intentional, but it is, um, it is, well, let me go back. It is highly intense in its intentionality. See, when he, Paul wants to get to Rome, and he says, I'm, I want to be there. I've prayed and prayed and prayed. God keeps saying no, but I'm going to keep seeking to come. I want to come there because I'm eager to preach the gospel of which I am unashamed. This, what he calls the gospel of God, that becomes his gospel, but it's his gospel because he's embraced it. It's not his gospel because he invented it. The gospel originates with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinitarian gospel. The Father authors our salvation, the Son accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. And he says, I am eager and unashamed to come. And then he gives us a little taste of what he is going to expound. Folks, when we get to chapter 4, all the way to the end, we are going to be marinated in the great gospel truths, their blessings and their implications and their commands and their call. It is going to be just a wonderful feast. But from chapter 1, verse 18, he's giving you a taste of why this gospel of grace. You see, what he has given you, first of all, is the grace of God revealed from heaven in the gospel of God through the Son of God who came from heaven 
and went to Calvary to save us. And he just gave you a little taste in verses 16 and 17. It's the gospel. It's not a man-invented, modified, or edited gospel. It's a God-revealed gospel in his word. The gospel, and if you don't get it right, you get everything else wrong in Christianity. You get everything wrong. So that's why it's of first importance. And then he says, this gospel is the power of God. And you're about to find out why the power of God ought to give you joy as that, that profile of the gospel of God. And then he says, it's the righteousness of God. And now, not only in Jesus has the power of God been marshaled, but the righteousness of God that stands over us to condemn us has now been marshaled in Christ to save us. The power of God that rescues us, redeems us, we're born again, and now the righteousness of God who gives us not only a canceled ticket to hell, but an assured arrival in heaven through the righteousness of God whereby we are accepted in the beloved. And this gospel is inclusive of any and all who believe. And this gospel is exclusive because there's no other way for those under the wrath of God to be saved except through Jesus and the grace of God, which is greater than our sins. And so now he turns, and you notice that first word I read, I asked you to underline it. Remember that first word? That first word was for. He'd given you the grace of God and the gospel of God revealed from heaven. And now he says, why am I eager and unashamed to preach this to Romans and anywhere else I go? Because the wrath of God is now revealed. That's why. Here's what he's telling you. You will never turn to the grace of God. And you will never desire more than anything else to praise God for his glorious grace. Until you understand that Christ not only died for you, he died because of you. Because of you. We were the children of wrath. You just confessed it from Ephesians 2. The sons of disobedience under the wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, caused us to be born again. Power of God. To a living hope, the righteousness of God. By grace, you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. So here is, he is giving you this backdrop of the wrath of God that ought to give us a heart of praise to God because we're saved by the grace of God and compel us to the lost who now find themselves, not will find themselves, who now find themselves under God's wrath. Notice what it says, for the wrath of God is, not will, is revealed from heaven. Where? 
against all ungodliness, living life without reference to God, and unrighteousness. That's the personal lifestyle culture of ungodliness. When you live life without a reference to God, then you embrace rebellion against God, the transgression of his law, unrighteousness. And then he says, now I want you to see, see how intricate this is? He said, I want you to see the specific sin that pulls the trigger on the wrath of God now. Not the wrath of God then, we'll deal with that later, but the wrath of God now. Why is that trigger pulled he says this because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness I'll tell you every for these last three weeks in this text I have searched and searched trying to get across to you what this suppression is it is the it is the destined failure of men to push God's truth down into the recesses of oblivion It is the destined failure of men and women with unrighteousness and a darkened heart to push the truth of God into oblivion. But it won't work. I'm about to give you an illustration, my best one for three weeks thinking about. And I will acknowledge it's probably not that good. But I'll give you my best shot. We do a year's, uh, every year we try to get our entire family on a vacation. I put up with my uh, children because I want to be with their spouses. I thank God for them every single day. And then I want most of all to get with their grand, with my grandchildren. And we will come and my grandchildren have introduced me to something that we didn't have at the beach when I was growing up. I, I think I got the name right. It's a sawed off shortened version of a surfboard, but it's made out of styrofoam and they call it a boogie board. And they keep saying, granddaddy, come on and boogie on the board. <laughs> I didn't boogie when I could boogie, much less boogie on a board. But we would get the boogie board. We'd go down to the beach. We'd have fun with it. But then we would, at the end of the day, you know what you do too, don't you? You come back after, off the beach and you go to the pool. So you can jump in the pool and get off the sand and bless everybody else with the sand from the beach that you brought back to the pool. And then you dive in. And inevitably, this boogie board that we were doing surfing on the little waves with now is used in the pool and there's only one thing you can do with the boogie board there's no wave in the pool so there's only one thing you can do is what push it down i'm going to sit on the boogie board i'm going to stand on the boogie board well let me assure you if you have not found out yet you may get temporary success but that boogie board's going to win would you like to know how many times i have done battle suppressing that boogie board that it's popped up and slapped me right in my nose and in my face time and time again it's the dumbest game i don't know how they get me into it every single year it is insanity well that's what i I'm trying to tell you, we, in the suppression of God's truth, what Paul is going, to, is going to show you by the Spirit of God, create a culture of insanity, absurdity, immorality, and imbecility. It is utterly counterproductive and stupid. We think we can deify ourselves, and we actually end up dehumanizing ourselves that's what actually happens so what I'd like for you to do is to walk through it with me the intricacy of it and um, and let's see what he is telling us as to why Christ died for us 
And what does it mean he died because of us? What is us? Well, here's what he says in verse, in, uh, ch- in chapter uh, 1. And let me pick up where I left off. Verse 22. There are, now here's what I want you to watch for. There are, now what, listen to me. There are three, there are three idolatrous exchanges we make. And then there are three divine judgments in response to those exchanges. Look with me in chapter 1 and verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. In other words, the suppression of truth, what's the problem? A darkened heart. The heart of the problem is the not information. The heart of the problem is not uh, information. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Here's what Paul has said. We are born into this world and we are born into a world that is a cyclorama IMAX theater of God's glory and majesty. And the surround sound is perfect. The heavens are shouting the glory of God. The earth reveals the handiwork, his fingerprints, his footsteps. We can even see his eternal power and divine nature. But then we suppress the truth and it always ends up with two markers. Futile thinking from a darkened heart and empty idolatry. The two markers will always be futile thinking and empty to the futility of their mind and the and then the idolatry of the things of this world instead of the creator of the world. And what does it he say that happens? They we then we then exchange the glory of God for the glory of God and his majestic praise for the emptiness of idolatry. While we claim to be wise, in other words, we embark in our sin, from our sin nature, in rebellion against God, and we start a journey into imbecility. Professing to be wise, we become fools. Some of the greatest thinkers in the world, we don't quit thinking We just start futile thinking, a trajectory into imbecility. And we don't quit worshiping when we refuse to worship God. We'll worship anything and everything but God. Here's what he says, that claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God Gave them up. I think a better translation. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, to the dishonoring of their body. In other words, he says this. I want you to I want you to get this. Don't miss it. I want to give it to you now. The other services I gave it at the end, but I want to give it to you now. Is that what you're going to see is this. There are two constant refrains. The emptiness of thinking and in the covenant of sin that man makes against God. 
The covenant of sin has a sacrament. Sexual anarchy. Sexual anarchy is our visible way to rebel against God with one of the most powerful appetites and passions that he has given to us. That is a glorious gift in the initiation, recreation, and procreation of marriage. And what we will do is instead of enjoying that to the praise of God, we will take that as the outward statement, our sacramental, visible statement of our rebellion against God in abject depravity and sexual anarchy. And that's what you're going to see. So God gives them over to what? Impurity, that's sexual impurity. Their passions to the lust of their heart. What a gift that's given with an appetite framed in love that becomes a blessing to God. Let the marriage bed be what? Holy. And that we bless one another in marriage. As the marriage is initiated, consummated, recreated, and procreation that takes place. But instead, the passions take over and now are embraced with impurity. And just put the words underneath it. Fornication, adultery, pornography, all of those things. You see, folks, I'm having to deal with things I would not choose to deal with. But in expositional preaching, I'm confronted with it. And with my belief that the Scripture is inspired by God and profitable to equip us, I've got to deal with it. And I'm trying to deal with it appropriately, but I can't undo what God has said. It has to be clear. When you say no to the worship of God, the worship of self will have a sacrament. And that sacrament of that idolatry will will end up being sexual anarchy and here the god-given uh, appetites are turned into lustful passions from that darkened heart now comes passion lust of that heart that are then embraced in rebellion against god that's what happens to us as god gives us over to our sins but it doesn't, you would think, and, and notice it says this. It says, it said, now look, it, you don't do this by yourself. Anybody that tells you that sexual sins are matters of personal privacy is dead wrong. Dead wrong. Is it pornography? You want to see the industry and destruction of women's lives and families? Is it um, adultery? You want to see the destruction of families and the children because of it? And marriages? No, listen. This matter of impurity to the dishonoring of... It has consequences. Sin always... You can even get forgiven and those consequences are unremedied. That they have this, they, and this, this whole matter of our lives, the dishonoring them bodies. Now watch, among themselves, it's not just a personal culture of impurity, it becomes a society culture. Among themselves, it happens. And so not only is there consequences of us, but consequences of us in the lives of others as well. 
And so here is this, here is this, um, then you would think that we would repent. No, no. I, I had a guy tell me one time, it's amazing that we've got something that I learned as a kid that we seem to do in life. When we begin to confront the shame, the guilt, and the consequences of sin, you know what we do? We seldom repent because of it unless the Holy Spirit works in our life. What we do is what we used to call as a kid, we just double dog dare God. And we go back worse. So what do they do? They don't turn from the emptiness of idolatry. They double dog dare God. Look at what happens. Next verse. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged now not the, just the glory of God, now the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature. They go from image making to straight out what we now call secular humanism. The worship of man made in the image of God as if he is God. Do y'all, now, would you navigate back to what I said? Our sin, our sin culture, we think deifies us. Actually, it dehumanizes us. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And do you see the pre- this whole worship issue again and again? The paramount statement of hatred to God is the refusal to give him worship and to give false worship to false gods. That's the paramount rebellion against God. And that's why we suppress the truth, because we do not remember want to honor God or give him thanks. We want to take his place. It's not enough to be made in his image. We want to take his place. We have bought the lie and exchanged it for the truth of God. And because we have done that, God then does another give over. Look at the next verse. For this reason, God gave them up to, now watch, dishonorable passions. For their women, and can I say, may I quarrel with this translation? I believe the King James and the NAS has a better translation because they leave out a word that I think ought to be there. And it's an important word. For even the women. For even the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and notice you always get consequences. Receiving the due penalty for their error. So he says when you Say no to the glory of God. God gives you over to sexual promiscuity as the sacrament of rebellion against him. Then when the individual and the culture denies the truth of God for a lie, then what happens next is that is what happens next is the unrestrained movement of dishonorable passions, unnatural passions and desires. It's very important that you understand that. 
Because right now you're in a culture that says, well, no, listen. Um, well, first of all, before I get to that, I want to be very careful on this. What he is saying is an unnatural passion is not love for the same sex, but a particular love for the same sex. I love, I've got guys I love dearly. I got three friends. We just grew up together playing ball and we're just good friends. I got three guys I meet in my calendar, but I love those guys. But that's a phileo love, not an eros love. That's unnatural. But I want to make clear to you, phileo love, men to men and women to women, is not only natural, it's good and necessary. We need brotherly love, sisterly love with each other. But this is erotic attraction. This is a dishonorable passion. This is an unnatural passion and lust. So when someone comes up to you and says, well, now, Pastor, don't get so upset about this behavior. Listen, you need to accept it because they were born that way. There's a genetic disposal. A, it's never been found, never will be found in honest science. Why do you say that, Harry? Because God's Word just told me it doesn't belong to the natural creation. It's unnatural. It's asked and answered right there for me. Is it a genetic disposition? No. Asked and answered. Well, pastor, it's of their sin nature. It's not a natural, but it's of their sin nature. Agreed. But it's of their sin nature as we work out our sin nature. You don't get a designed sin nature. You don't get a designer sin nature. Well, I got a promiscuous, I got a promiscuous sin nature. I got an addictive sin nature. I've got a thieving sin nature. I've got a homicidal sin nature. I've got an alcoholic sin nature. You don't get a designer sin nature. We get a sin nature. And then we, in response to what's around us and in life and in self-worship, we begin to design the outworking of that sin nature. You're not held accountable without engagement. And that's our engagement with the sin nature and how we pervert a natural passion, a good passion. The marriage bed is holy into a insanity and absurdity of sexual promiscuity and then the insanity and absurdity of unnatural passions. It is what you have to go through to fulfill this is not only unnatural, it is insane and absurd. And what's the result? The due penalty in your body. Folks, we can, and I'm all for Christian medicine, preventive, palliative, curative. But we can go after sexually transmitted diseases with treatments and medicines and shots and therapies, all we want to, but we will never erase them. Because when you break God's law, God's law breaks you physically and spiritually and emotionally and socially. Bodies, marriages, lives, families, it breaks it. But let me tell you what can happen. You can get forgiven. And you can be set free by the grace of God.
through Jesus who took the wrath of God that you might be saved. But that's your only solution. But it's a glorious solution. It not only changes your status, it breaks the power of sin and starts eradicating the practices of sin. I really want you to see that. I want you to know that. I want you to feel that. I want you to see how God's glorious grace, when it takes over, is absolutely um, redeeming and gloriously uh, uh, sets us free. But know this, there are consequences to our sin. Did you know, if somehow every person became a Christian, gave their life to Jesus, and said, I am only going to have sexual relationships in marriage with my husband for life, with my wife for life. Do you know in one generation we would eradicate all sexually transmitted diseases? They'd be done. So here is the second step. Is anybody looking in the mirror? 60s to 90s? In the previous century? Stanza one, sexual promiscuity. Through our humanism, secular humanism. Anybody seen what's happened? Stanza number two in the 21st century? There's where we are. Well, wait, we're not there yet. And some of you are sitting there, I know, saying, well, God, you know, I so I want to praise the Lord. I'm not sexually promiscuous. Praise the Lord. And I'm not into the sexual perversion. I'm not a homosexual. I'm not, a, I'm not into the LGBTQIA plus agenda. I'm not there. Well, hold on. You might see yourself in just a moment. There's a third stanza. And let's take a look. In fact, let me say this. I'll, I'll quote R.C. on this one. If you don't see yourself in just a moment, you are a sociopath. We are about to see ourselves in just a moment because of what the culture is doing around us and how we're letting the culture into us and the church. We're letting the world into us. Now, let me show you what I mean. Take with me the next stanza. Here we go. It says this, um, and since they did not see, look at verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So here's our third exchange. We deny the glory of God. We deny the truth of God. Now we deny God. Since they refuse to acknowledge God, God, here's that phrase again, God gave them up. To a debased mind. Futile thinking and idolatry emptiness has now ended up into a debased mind so that we are now moving in our personal lifestyle and our culture from depravity to debased thinking and from total depravity to living absolute depravity when the restraints are taken away of God's common grace. And so we do what ought not to be done. See the ethical word, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. There's that phrase again. Our, our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. And now he lists 
the culture of insanity, rebellion, absurdity lived out before God in personal lives and in society. It's just a selected, uh, selected, this is not exhaustive, evil. You now live in a society that calls evil good and good evil. Light, darkness, and darkness, light. Covetousness. Covetousness. Malice. They are full of envy. Anybody here content? Is Jesus enough? Is our godly ambition to make to know Christ and make him known? Or is our ambition the idolatry statements of the world? And do we have what we have or does what we have have us? Covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder. Hey, how about strife? Has anybody noticed that our culture is polarized? Has anybody noticed that the church gets polarized over insignificant things and, and preferences? Can I tell you why? Because the world who has an industry of polarization is controlling what we're thinking and saying more than the Word of God and the Spirit of God is controlling what we're thinking and saying. That's why. Anybody notice the idolatry of this world has taken over? Well, let me put it this way. Anybody encounter a traffic jam in the streets on the way to church today? No, but I will tell you where you'll get a traffic jam. It'll be Monday through Saturday. And don't think that's not a religious traffic jam. It is full of idolatry. And if you get in their way, you better put an earplug in for the horn and what's going to be said. Because this is a religious passion, our self-reliance, self-exaltation, self-absorption in all of the things of the world that there's nothing wrong in and of themselves. But we have turned them into idols because of the idolatry of ourselves. And that is where we're looking at society. And it's not just so much a culture. I'm starting to see myself. And look at this. Not only strife, but then he says this. They are, um, they're full of envy, strife, deceit. Deceit. Anybody ask, why in the world could we write a constitution? I forgot how many hundreds of words for a whole nation. And now we pass a regulation and it requires 5,000 pages. Can I tell you why? Because we're all trying to find loopholes. We're all trying to be technically on target, but then go do what we want to. We're trying to stop. Have you ever wondered why we got so many lawyers? I love lawyers. Most lawyers. Briarwood member lawyers. But can I tell you why we've exploded with lawyers and therapists? Because we're looking everywhere else to get order in society than the heart. And the gospel goes to the heart. So we've got to hem it all in. We've got to close all the loopholes. And we've got to just multiply litigation and regulation. Because we've lost our soul and our heart. Deceit. 
Even when we're writing to close the loopholes, we're usually trying to open up our own loophole as a politician or as a statesman or as an elected official. Statesmen don't do that. And I thank God for the statesmen in this church. And then, you, um, and then he says, not only is there deceit, I'm sorry, I'm out of time. Let me just finish this. Inventors of evil. Folks, there's nothing wrong with your computer. There's nothing wrong with an iPhone. There's nothing wrong with a television set. There's nothing wrong with the websites. I mean, with, the, with websites. All of those are tools. Our problem is we're taking everything not only to sin, but to invent new ways of sin and invent new ways of getting people to sin with us. That's what our problem is. We are inventors of evil. And then we hear, and then he goes on to say that um, disobedient to parents. When you disobey your parents, it is cosmic treason against God. Unless they're telling you to transgress the law of God. Well, I just don't want to do that. Doesn't matter. I think I ought to have an iPhone. Sorry. Obey your parents and honor them. When you don't. It's giving away. You don't want to honor the Lord. Then he says, not only disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that see, we know that even if we're pushing it down, the boogie board of truth keeps coming up and slapping us into faith. This is worthy of death. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. So what do we do? Well, if we're going to sin and die, then we'll take some more with us. So they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Not only will we sin, we'll draw others into it with us. And let me tell you something else. We'll change the cultural codes and declare we have a right to sin. We have a right to kill the baby. In the womb that's inconvenient, that may be expensive, that's imperfect, that's unwanted. We have a right to end this marriage. They don't meet my needs anymore. We have a right to destroy our family. We have a right to say no to God in my God-given gender. We destroy manliness and womanliness. We will, in this culture of insanity and absurdity, we will embrace the chaos of despair. And it's not enough to do it personally. We'll bring others along with us. And then we'll write, amend, change the law of the land to say we've got a right to do this. We have a right to destroy marriage and family and gender and life. We have a right to do this, but listen to me. You may, in your culture of insanity and depravity, we may declare rights to sin and rebel against God. But no matter how many rights we invent to sin against God, sin will never be right. And it will never get rid of the shame and the guilt. So here's your takeaway, and then I'll close in prayer. When God gives us over to our sin, it inevitably leads to a culture, lifestyle of insanity, absurdity, sexual anarchy, unrestrained, 
um, sexual anarchy of valid appetites into lust of the heart and then dishonorable lust and despair marked by an unrelenting rebellion against the glory of God. Praise God. But, but, one of the blessings of God giving us over in this day is to tell us to surrender and give us, give us, give ourselves over to Him so that we'll not be sent away in that day. God has done something glorious for us to save us. Folks, listen to me. The mark of the suppression of truth and rebellion against God will be sophisticated, futile thinking. The mark of rebellion and suppression of God's truth will be the emptiness of idolatry. And when God gives us over, the sacraments of rebellion will be revealed. Sexual promiscuity, sexual perversion, and social approval of rebellion against God. And no matter how many people we get to sin with us, and no matter how many times we get it codified, the right to sin, it'll never be right. And you will not be able to keep the truth underwater. God's truth will come up with God giving us over. You see, we can keep raising our fist in the face of God. We will not give you praise. We will not give you glory. We will suppress the truth. That is what we'll do. And then God raises his hand, not in a benediction, but in a malediction, and then says... Thy will be done. And not only is our sin calling for God's wrath, the death spiral of our sin is God's wrath. Not only does our rebellion with passions unleashed and unrestrained and unnatural passions embraced and social approval of rebellion against God. Not only does that call for God's judgment, the reality, its presence is God's judgment. The wrath of God revealed. But pastor, don't Christians struggle with these things? Absolutely. Can I ask y'all in closing just to turn to one verse? Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. If there was ever a place, if there was ever a place that was exhibit A of everything I've just said in the first century, it was Corinth. The word Corinthian meant a sexual pagan in that day. And the sexual paganism was there and Paul came and planted a church and before he left 18 months later, this is what he wrote. First Corinthians 16, 9. Or do you not know 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. That sound familiar? The sexually immoral, promiscuous, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, the kingdom of God's a gift, you inherit it. But here's who haven't inherited. Those who are under the dominion of this sin. And such were, Corinthians, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. Don't you see, folks? I don't know where you are today. I don't know whether you know Jesus or not. And if you don't know Jesus and you find yourself in this downward spiral into the cesspool and drain of this culture of insanity and immorality and imbecility, I tell you, there's a glorious but, and that is Jesus loves to save sinners. Give yourself over to Christ. Let him take over. Then you won't be given over and the reason people got saved there is because the apostle Paul came and planted a church I know you know what I'm going to say on mission on message and in ministry that's why he didn't go to transform that culture he went to transform sinners now look what happened he told them about a gospel Now watch, I'm just quoting the text. He told them about a gospel that will take you right where you are, Mr. Homosexual, Miss Homosexual, Mr. Adulterer, Mr. Promiscuous, Mr. Addicted, Mr. Thief, Mr. Uh, He'll take you right where you are when you put your trust in Him and turn from your sin. And He'll make you right, the righteousness of God. He'll set you free. Remember that? The power of God. He'll do that for you right now. And then He will begin to work on you and in you so that you can say, not only legally am I right with God, but no longer is that my life. This this ridiculousness. Christians Christians who are saved don't go around saying, I'm a promiscuous Christian. I'm a pornographic Christian. I'm an adulterous Christian. No, no, no. Whatever those sins were. And folks, I listen, I feel of those sins, six of them were dominating my life when I was converted. Some of them he microwaved out the next day. Some of them we've been killing by the power of the Spirit every day of my life since then. And I thank God for Lord's Day worship that can fill up my heart with the means of grace so there's no room for that old man to get its tentacles back in the heart. And I thank God for every morning in His Word that I can meet Him so that that day I don't give the devil an opportunity to bring that old man back with his passions. 
That's what God grants to us by His grace. You've got the declarative blessings of the gospel. You're right with God, justified and adopted. And you've got the transformation blessings of the gospel. You are regenerated. You're born again. You're sanctified. You're growing not for grace, but in the grace of the Lord Jesus with worship and preaching and discipleship and fellowship and evangelism. And you don't take those things to name yourself. We just confessed it, didn't we? What did we just say, brothers and sisters? These things ought even not to be named among us. Much less our identity. And when they crop up, we don't manage them. We mortify and kill them. Fleeing temptation and putting to death the old man daily. To live out of the love of Christ. To follow Him. Well, and that's why we don't want to suppress truth. We want to hunger for truth. Oh, may that word of God be preached and may I meditate on it. And we don't want idolatry. We want to be true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And praise the Lord for the Lord's Day where He gathers all of this together to bless our souls. Pastor, why can you say that? Because of what you just sang a while ago. In Christ alone. We're at Calvary. What? The wrath of God was satisfied. The love of God in Christ is magnified. You see, quote Mr. Ferguson, there's three more giveovers in the book of Romans. I've just done three. There's three more of God giving over. Can I give you one of them? And this is why we can be on mission. And we got a great message. The gospel. Romans 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him over for us. That we might have all things in him. No longer the children of wrath. Why? The Son of God went to Calvary. He bore the wrath of God for you. That's why we can say, such were some of you. That's what we take on mission, on message, in ministry, to the Corinthian Corinth of our world, to our own nation. And we get to go to the heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to be in your word. And thank you for the great and awesome honor to exalt Christ. Thank you, God, for this. This is such challenging text. And so intricately, so intense. Um, but I pray that you would have overruled my inadequacies. In spirit of the living God, you would be speaking. Those here who have come seeking, may they say no to the wrath of God and come to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who because of our sin took away the wrath of God at Calvary so that we can be saved by the grace of God, dying for us to take away from us what caused him to go there 
out of love for us. Would you please draw them to Jesus today? Don't leave here today. If you want to talk to someone, please see us. We would love to tell you about this Jesus who freely saves. And Father, for those of us who now are rescued, may next time we gather for worship, may we love to worship. May we love to worship as it sets the thermostat for our lives in worship and so that we can be a witness to this world that needs the salt and light of your church doing its job to send your people into this world who are prepared to say no to the world that's trying to get in them and yes to Jesus that the world might come to the Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205 776 5200.